9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. This is a special episode where we're going to take a deep dive into a story that appeared over the weekend in the New York Times that was, I think, essential reading to understanding what is going on within this coronavirus crisis and the government response. The story was called, He Could Have Seen What Was Coming Behind Trump's Failure on the Virus. It ran on April 11th, and it was written by Eric Lipton, David Sanger, Maggie Haberman, Michael Shear, Mark Mazzetti, and Julian Barnes. And we're very lucky to have with us today of course, our friend, David Sanger, regular here at Deep State Radio, and his colleague, Michael Shear, who is a White House correspondent for the uh, New York Times, and who, uh, with uh, Julie Hirschfield Davis, wrote a book called Border Wars, Inside Trump's Assault on Immigration, uh, which came out from Simon & Schuster last year, and we encourage you to give it a read. So let's begin um, with a bit of a recap, and Michael, since you're new to these conversations here at Deep State Radio, let me turn to you first. What do you think are the key insights that, um, that, that this article offered up? So I think, look, I, you know, the, the broad outlines of some of the failures in the government's response to the virus are, have been sort of out there for a few weeks. Uh, you know, people have talked about the lack of testing, um, you know, people have talked about some of the ways in which the president played down, uh, shrugged off the significance of the of the uh, of what others were um, saying early on might be might be a more significant threat to the United States. I think the two pieces uh, that that our reporting really kind of brought to bear was one the extent to which there the early warnings were not just kind of communicated out in the ether. Uh, for, you know, as the president used to say, like, oh, who could have possibly known that this was coming or that this would be this bad? No, in fact, the reporting shows uh, that whether it's the national security officials, the intelligence community, the public health, uh, uh, top public health officials throughout the government, um, uh, economic advisors, there were people inside the government, close to the president, inside the White House, who were uh, warning early on in January and certainly by early February that this was going to be, um, you know, potentially really bad. And and there were people even communicating that directly to the president. And so there's that's kind of one bucket of sort of lessons from the story. And the second, I think, is, is further on in the timeline. And that is that um, there came a point when the public health officials of the United States decided, hey, the, the effort our effort to contain this, to keep it outside of the borders of the United States, or, or at least to contain it in small pockets, you know, in the United States, that that effort had largely failed. And it was clear to the public health officials uh, that that had been the case and that we were going to have to move to what they call mitigation, which we all know as this thing that's keeping us inside, keeping us home from school and work and, and all of that. Um, and, and they were prepared to tell the president that uh, to brief the president towards the end of February, the last week of February, that this was, we're gonna have to move in that direction. 
And for all sorts of reasons that we can get into and talk about that, that, that briefing never happened. Uh, and, and the effort to go to a, a more serious mitigation uh, to, try to, to try to slow the spread of the virus it stalled and didn't happen for several weeks. And that had, long, that had all sorts of implications for uh, the seriousness uh, and, and the, the, the spread of the virus in those three weeks uh, when, when the president and the White House sort of hesitated to put in place those kinds of, uh, those kinds of measures. And I think those are the sort of two big lessons uh, that David and I and that long cast of characters that you talked about uh, wrote about. Well, you know, David, one of the things that brings the story to life is, of course, the existence of this uh, uh, group, which called itself Red Dawn. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about who they were and why that's important. So the Red Dawn group, uh, David, was um, a group of uh, public health officials, doctors, epidemiologists, many of whom, not all of whom, had worked in the Bush administration, George W. Bush's uh, administration, and had some role in putting together what wasn't a bad pandemic uh, strategy at the time. Some of it had grown out of 9-11, out of Dick Cheney's um, concern about bioweapons, but most of it grew out of the fact that George W. Bush had had read a book about the 1918 um, pandemic flu, and, this so startled him that he asked for a strategy to come together because he was thinking out ahead. I realize this is an innovative concept given modern governance, but, but uh, that's, that's where he was headed. And, you know, Con- um, Condoleezza Rice ta- once told me in writing one of my books that George W. Bush was the most strategic person she ever met. Uh, and, and, yeah. and, and I didn't, I didn't really have a lot of evidence to support that, but what you're offering is at least one. Yeah, and he was actually, big, and he was a big reader. Remember, he, he and Carl Rove had this like uh, book club competition. Right. Um, but um, the 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 result of that was that when all of these folks left office, um, they called themselves the Wolverines, and the Wolverines, you may recall, were a group in that really terrible 1984 movie, Red Dawn, which envisioned the Soviets taking over the United States. And there was this one group of rebels who today we might call the deep state, uh, who were sort of battling a rear guard action. And so it was, a, it was sort of an inside joke, but there was no laughing in it by the time this group began to exchange notes in January about what they were seeing come out of China. And uh, we opened the story, actually, with an email from Carter Meacher, who is now the chief medical officer of the Veterans Administration, but had been involved in that earlier Bush administration strategy, in which he is saying, wow, this is a lot bigger and coming right at us. Uh, And that was late January. There was not unanimity of this. Even the revered Dr. Fauci had his doubts in late January through mid-February about what, what this would look like in the United States. By the third week of February, there's no disagreement. And that time period that uh, Mike was discussing, uh, which is that period from the third week of February through to the middle of March when the, the real... Um, uh, stay-at-home orders and social distancing began. That was critical lost time. I think something else that the series um, 
really illustrated in addition to the timing issues was something cultural about this administration, that the president came out of impeachment uh, and his experiences last year determined to destroy the deep state enemies that he thought had been behind that. And it gave him a suspicion of experts, of bureaucrats, um, even the people who were raising this to him in his own cabinet, Alex Azar, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, the National Security Council officials who were concerned about it, they didn't have a whole lot of standing. And he's not a big plan B guy. He's a big give me the transaction today guy. And so he wasn't thinking when he took the step uh, I think a, a good step to go stop the uh, people who had been in China for 14 days from flying into the U.S., even though it was a band that had a lot of holes in it. Uh, he wasn't stopping to think, gee, this alone is not going to go do it. And so he never got the list of what else are we going to need, even though there were memos being written by his trade advisor, Peter Navarro, uh, and others saying, we're going to be short of beds, we're going to be short of protective gear, we're going to be short of ventilator parts. Uh, and that conversation never happened. And sometimes the biggest news in Washington is what doesn't happen, not what does. So, Michael, you know, um, of course, David is talking about a, a distrust of the deep state that predates this. Um, and, 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 you know, a distrust of expertise, and of professionals because he couldn't count on their loyalty. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there's a subtext, I think, to this, this whole story, um, as well structured as it is. Uh, and the subtext is that, you know, the, the reason the story had to be written was that the president kept saying th that no one could have anticipated this coming, that this was a surprise. Um, but of course, uh, if you'd read one book of world history, you'd know that these things happen periodically. Uh, if you have looked at the president's administration, he was warned by the Obama administration when they were coming in. Uh, Tom Bossert and some of his advisors were warned. There were these this desk, uh, tabletop exercise. Um, there were warnings in the in the in the last year from the intelligence community, from his economic advisors, from um, uh, others within the government, including the ones that we're talking about in January. So the, the reality is his argument never held the water anyway. You needed to document it because it's important. But clearly Trump did know. And so having studied this, what 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 do you think the well, real story look, was? I mean you, well, look, you I, I yeah, I think I think it, I think I think you you you've hit on it, and I think David's point about the broader culture of what this of, of this administration is really instructive. Um, you know, the the point of our story was to zero in particularly on this episode that we're all living through right now. But if you know, I mean, you go back go back the the last three and a half years that we've all been documenting and writing about this administration, whether it's Michael Lewis, who wrote this fabulous book called book called The Fifth Risk, right, who talked about um, the ways in which the the Trump administration, when it came in, the transition from into office, which was, you know, not just uh, 
sort of completely disdainful of expertise, right? Of any sort of expertise that had had come before. They just didn't want to listen. Um, I wrote a book last year about immigration and Trump and the ways in which the policy process was completely broken. That they that they that they were deeply suspicious of anybody on the immigration policy front that, um, uh, you know, that, that brought any sort of, of, of legal thinking, legal process that would, that would, uh, you know, kind of undergird the, the objectives that the president and Stephen Miller wanted to achieve. And then, you know, I spent the last five months covering impeachment uh, right before this. And, and it, it is, you cannot, I mean, the, the story of the impeachment of Donald Trump is ultimately the story of his, um, you know, war against the expertise around him in terms of his foreign policy vis-a-vis Ukraine. And so, you know, look what he's done. Look what he started doing right after that period, right after his acquittal. He started firing the very people who had testified against him. And I think you pull all of that together and none of this should come as a surprise, right? The idea that Donald Trump would um, reject the advice of the experts around him, in this case, medical experts, um, should be the least surprising thing that anybody has said, given the history of three and a half years of a presidency essentially devoted to rejecting the advice of the professionals, um, be, you know, in part because he was so deeply distrustful of their motives and believing that the people who had the expertise, whether they be attached to the former Barack Obama's administration, or even even beyond that, even further back into the Bush administration, he he believes ultimately uh, that they're out to destroy his presidency. And so I think, you know, it it is uh, it is kind of the, the the hard thing to imagine is that he would listen to them, that he would take their advice, that he would seek their counsel. And the the fact is, I think it's pretty clear that until. David sort of mentioned the date of March, sort of middle of March. I mean, I think that was when, uh, you know, he had essentially no choice but to begin to listen uh, to the to the people who he he didn't really want to listen to. And it's, uh, David, uh, Michael is um, being unduly modest here in a way that would offend deep state um, <laughs> listeners who know that you come to this uh, to this podcast to, among other things, shill for your book. So he he wrote or co-wrote Border Wars. With Julie Davis, Julie wrote all the best parts of it. I, I can tell yeah, you. Yeah, of course, definitely. Yeah, right. Definitely. Uh, but it's a, it's the best single read about the obsession about um, securing the borders, and I think it fits right into this because if the president had put um, a fifth of the mind share or a tenth of the money that he was putting into building a wall to thinking about how you would be setting up surveillance systems for pandemics we'd be in a very different place today. Well, yeah, but I think that, you know, that that's sort of where I was going with this question because he's not just kind of, you know, I don't trust the expert, although he doesn't. Um, he's, he's, he's a little bit more damn the facts full speed ahead because he's got an agenda. His agenda tends to be related to uh, his own perception of his standing, of his political you know, uh, viability role going forward. And I think in this case, it was clear pretty early on that he saw these views of the experts, not in the context of there's a public health crisis coming, but in the context of there's a potential problem for your presidency coming. And 
he said, if we play this up, I, you know, because, and that's, you could tell because he was playing it down the whole time that he, you know, he, that it would be damaging to him. And so he thought, well, we will suppress that. And I think one of the, 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 the realities of this was from very early on trying to suppress data. Let's keep that ship off the coast. Let's not get those people in here because it's going to push up our statistics. Let's not test. Uh, and in fact, there's been this extraordinary process of slow walking testing that continues to this day. Because if you test, then you will find positive cases. The numbers will go up. If you test, you will find positive cases that die and the mortality numbers will go right. up. And that reflects badly on, on him. So David, in the doing of this, did, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm coming at this from somebody who studies it and reads about it, but did, did, do you think that the research that you guys did supports that perspective? No, absolutely. And, you know, there's one moment in the, in the, um, narrative that we put together that I think really sends that message out. So you may remember the president went in February to uh, India and on his way back from India, the head of the CDC gave a, a pretty honest talk about what was coming our way. And this is end of second, beginning of third week of February, I think. Is that, is that right, Michael? Yeah, that's about um, right. And when she says, look, this is going to change our lives. And I'm telling my kids it's going to, it's going to change their lives. We're going to have to, you know, move to mitigation, lock ourselves School, schools down. Schools are going to have to close, right. Yeah, mm -hmm. she, was, she had it completely right, okay? So he hears about this, lands, and immediately calls uh, Alex Azar, uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, and starts screaming at him about, why somebody's out talking like this. Well, once the word goes out like that, it becomes pretty clear that um, it's career ending to be honest about this. And, you know, we saw this again happen the other night when the president started retweeting something that said, fire Fauci, even if he doesn't fire Fauci. What it's basically the message is, is don't stand up and, and offer, give an honest assessment when Dr. Fauci was asked about our story and said, well, yeah, if we had acted earlier, certainly there probably would have been a beneficial uh, case on, on lives. But he said, these are hard decisions to make. And so, and, uh, oh, go right ahead, Mike. I'm, I was just going to jump in, David. I, I think, you know, the, the connection here is um, uh, that I think the story also got to, but David, your, your question uh, also reflects, is the, the connection between uh, how how Trump perceived the actions that he would or wouldn't take to counter the virus and the economic fortunes of the country, which in Trump's mind are equivalent to his own, the fortunes of his own presidency, right? Like his view of the success of his presidency have been from the beginning so integrally tied into this idea that somehow, you know, he's the greatest, he's presiding over the greatest economy that's ever that's ever existed and is linked, you know, not, not only to the stock market numbers, but to the job numbers and the uh, kind of uh, metrics that he always points to. And I think that from the beginning of the crisis, he understood kind of instinctively uh, the extent to which if you, the more aggressive you got against the virus, both in terms of actions that are taken, but also the rhetoric that David was just talking about, the, the sort of scary rhetoric, 
um, which which one of the things that her comments did um, was that the mar that was the beginning of the market plunge. I think the market went down about 1,100 points in the wake of her comments, and that's what got Trump so angry. And so I think there is to your initial question there he what were his motives for downplaying this well his motives were for downplaying this was because he he understood the so-called invisible enemy that he always talks about the virus is an invisible enemy but it was an enemy not just to the health and welfare of the american public but it was the enemy of his presidency potentially right the the thing that could undermine the most compelling argument for his reelection and lead people to conclude that maybe he's not the right one to, to be in the White House anymore. And I think he, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's pretty clear that that was on his mind the entire time. But he also thought he could whistle past it, you know, that like he's managed everything else. And of course, the virus doesn't care uh, what party you're in and what the Dad Jones industrial average is, right? right. The virus is going to do its thing. And so he didn't have enough experience with this or enough trust in the medical advice he was getting to realize that if you didn't deal with the virus, you had no shot of dealing with the economic impact. He also, he, I think he made, picking up exactly on that point, a fundamental miscalculation. He was afraid of the test numbers because he thought it would make it look worse. Right. And so he suppressed the test. Had he embraced testing and, and, and made a massive national push to test as broadly as possible, he might have been able to um, restrict the impact of lockdowns, the duration of lockdowns, and the impact on the economy. And he also would have sent a message to the markets that he was on top of this, they were gonna get the truth, and not to be afraid of it. And so- and also, if you don't have the numbers, David, you're always chasing the virus. You're never getting out ahead of it. Right. Well, yeah, quite apart from the underlying public health necessity of it, I'm saying, you know, there was also this fact that had he doubled down, had he mobilized um, uh, the Defense Production Act and said, we're going to have tests for everybody, we're going to have 100 million tests, we're going to do it in this period of time, then he might have had a more South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore-like right. result, right? And isn't and isn't that ultimately the the uh, the difference between a reality show president and a reality president, right? Like he's he's always been so fundamentally obsessed with the imagery of the presidency and what his what the PR looks like, and he complains to friends all the time. Did you see me? Did it look good? How is it playing for me on television, on cable news? He watches endlessly. Um, and, and as you say, I think in some ways that drove the kind of response, because if all you are, if you, if what you are concerned about is the image and the numbers and the metrics, um, then you don't necessarily do, uh, you don't necessarily do the thing that is fundamentally important to, to combat the virus, but that in the meantime is going to be is going to produce numbers that are really bad. Um, and I think by 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 focusing on the the imagery and the, the sort of uh, the stuff that the public relations of it, I think that 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 lost him a lot of time. So, David, you know, the question we come to, we only have a few more minutes left here, but the question we come to is, have they learned? And, and more specifically, has the president learned any of the lessons of this period? 
because you know you could say well they're doing something but on the other hand you know now he's retweeting te- uh, tweets that that have fire fauci in them and talking about opening the economy and that it's his you know he has the ability to do that quite apart from the constitution and 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 it it, it looks to me like nothing has changed but you guys dove into it do you think anything has changed well, you know, I think the next few weeks are going to be really critical in that. Um, first is this decision about whether to reopen the economy. And it's sort of interesting because he said he didn't have the authority to close it down, but he does have the authority to open it up. Yeah. <laughs> Not entirely sure how he, he got from, from one to the other. But um, the more important question to my mind, because this, this would be a hard balancing act for any president, even if he didn't have an election looming uh, in the midst of this, is has he learned the fundamental lesson that his view of what makes America secure was wildly too narrow? And I'm actually getting ready to, to write about this uh, uh, pretty soon. And you know, one of the arguments that came through from the reporting for this story was that he has always measured national security according to how many ships are we building, how survivable are our nuclear weapons? Uh, how much fear can we uh, uh, in, uh, bring about to our enemies? And how many walls can we build? And all of the things that we're discussing, the sort of non-military existential threats to the American population, got almost no thought at all. Now, if you were in if you were looking back in history at American presidents, you would say, okay, Kennedy went through the Cuban Missile Crisis and he came out saying, we need arms control. <clears throat> and Bush went through 9-11 and came out and said, we need counterterrorism. And you could argue he took it way too far, but that was where, where uh, he came out. Will Donald Trump come back out of this and say, we need to be pouring far more money into this kind of threat to the United States than we are into traditional military units that are uh, fighting the last war. And I just don't see it in anything that he has said so far. Well, I, th- I agree. I, I, go, go ahead. ahead. Go, well, I, I was just going to add, and this is just my own personal perspective, that it's not just a question for Donald Trump. It's a question for Joe Biden. It's a question for uh, Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi and the others who are shaping where we go from here. Because one of the things that has come out of this crisis is we have long talked about how strong we are, but this crisis has revealed how fragile that strength is. And that if you don't have healthcare for everybody, or you don't have uh, an unemployment system that can pick up the pieces when there are these periodic upset, uh, upsets, you don't have resilience. And you know, you talk a lot about resilience in the military uh, and having backups and you know, supply chain strength and all, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, but, but the, the, the underpinning of that, as, you know, George Kennan said in the, um, uh, uh, you know, X telegram and so forth is, um, is taking care of your domestic sources of strength first. And well, that may require and, rethinking, but yeah. Ahead. And I was actually, that, that was actually the, the point I was going to make is that I, I think that, that while it's important to know whether Donald Trump is, going to have learned the lesson here. And I, I, I think I, I joined David in saying I've, I see no evidence of that. I do think that his management, his handling of this, the way he and his administration 
uh, failed to failed to do what maybe they should have done all along the way has really underscored for the rest of the government. Um, you know, the, the, the fragility, the, uh, the, the holes in the response, sort of the country's response writ large, not, not even just the, um, the federal government's response, but the private sector's response, which didn't jump in to, to, to make these tests rapidly enough, and the, the supply chain issues that, um, uh, you know, that, that are still there. And I, so I do think that uh, one of the legacies of all of this, even now that we can see, we're not even finished with this, but the, the legacies is going to be that um, members of Congress in both parties other parts, other institutions, the private sector, everybody understands in a way I think that we haven't for a long time, uh, the, the places that need to be shored up and that whether Donald Trump gets it or not, I think that will happen over the, over the coming years. I think in the same way that 9-11, that um, you know, prompted a kind of wholesale um, kind of rethinking of the approach to terrorism. I think that's going to happen here. I think that's, uh, it will happen differently if, if it was maybe a different president, but I think it's going to happen nonetheless. Well, you know, I, we've got to wrap up, but I, 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 you know, David, you just said you were writing a piece about this and listening to Michael and listening to you, you know, one of the things that strikes me about it is having written about national security now for, most of my adult life and followed it. There have always been these sort of ingrained prejudices within the national security community, right? You know, things that exploded took priority over everything else. Great power threats took priority over lesser power threats. Uh, at the end of the Cold War, that, you know, caused a kind of moment of hesitation because the, the Cold Warriors and the the, 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 the specialists in mutually assured destruction were all of a sudden not the top of the food chain. And then after 9-11, we said, oh, well, there's asymmetric warfare and so forth. But, but that's conflict. And the first thing that the Bush administration did was they cast it as an existential threat to the United States. Um, well, pandemics are existential, existential threats and global warming is or a climate crisis is an existential threat, and those have always been seen as kind of, you know, the soft stuff, the 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 the, the secondary stuff in terms of national security. Um, and I, I think one of the real questions here is whether this produces the same kind of shift that 9/11 did with terrorism and asymmetric conflict. And I, you know, I pose that to you, David, because you're going to write about it, or Michael, but... No, go ahead, David. I, I can't imagine that it won't. And uh, you've got to think that um, it's going to change the intelligence community uh, because their emphasis has not been here. It's been on stealing secrets, you know, and all of this was playing out in the open. Uh, it's got to change the way we think about funding um, the CDC, funding the World Health Organization, you know. The president was talking about cutting the funding rather than how do we make this even more useful as an early warning system. The, the World Health Organization serves the role that our radars around the world serve to finding nuclear launches, right? Um, and uh, I don't think you're going to hear those words out of President Trump. But I suspect 
that you're probably going to hear them out of many in Congress, including many Republicans in Congress, who are going to have to go home and explain what they've done to keep the system from ever getting gummed up again the way it got gummed up here. This, you know, has been rightly compared to ignoring the radar readings at Pearl Harbor and ignoring the, the, the dots that weren't connected prior to 9-11. And um, if we don't build a global surveillance system that will give us early warning of what's coming in something like this, then there's something fundamentally wrong in our national security system and its ability to adopt. And one, one brief thing I, I will just say is I do think the election will be a referendum on your question, right? If we, if the, if we as a country reelect Donald Trump after this crisis is over um, and, and knowing the way Donald Trump will likely not embrace some of these big questions, these legacy questions, then I think the country is sending a message that perhaps, you know, we are not ready to make a seismic shift in the way that sort of we did after 9-11, for example. On the other hand, if, if President Trump is not reelected and in, in part the conclusion is because of this, because of the way in which he handled this crisis, then I think maybe that sends the country off in a different direction. So. Yeah, and that, by the way, is what has happened historically. It's, you know, in, in the wake right. of the Great Depression, we responded with different kinds of economic programs in the wake of World War II, not only did we set things up so we would avoid World War III, but you know, Eisenhower became concerned that, that, that we would lose the productive capacity that we had during World War II and pushed on that and so on through each one of these periods. So that I think may be the lesson of this and this report uh, in the New York Times, which ran on the 11th, which was called, He Could Have Seen What Was Coming Behind Trump's Failure on the Virus. Uh, is going to become one of those case studies of how not to handle a 21st century crisis uh, that may, in fact, play an important role in helping us uh, to learn how to do it better. And for that reason, we are extremely glad that we have had here Michael Shear and David Sanger, as always. Um, and uh, you know, we hope that we will be able to continue to talk to you guys going forward uh, on this and other related issues. And for those of you who'd like uh, to see what else we've got in store this week and in uh, uh, weeks ahead, please go to uh, uh, the dsrnetwork.com where we've got uh, uh, print co written content, we've got uh, all the shows, uh, and uh, this week we've got several uh, that we think you won't want to miss. So I would encourage you to go there. In the meantime, thank you, Michael. Thank you, David. And thank you, everybody, for listening and stay healthy.